Tiro Massey is a pharmacist, um, and we've talked before about vaccination and understanding where we were going with vaccine programs at the given time. Um, and I think the lens has shifted a little bit towards what we're doing now. So we had a conversation. He brought up masking a couple times, and uh, I think we had an earnest, honest discussion that we probably didn't change each other's minds on, but maybe it's fodder for you to listen to and get a sense how you feel about it. Maybe you hear that you're more how he feels and less how I feels. Maybe it's more how I feel and less how he feels. That's part of the conversation. That's part of the process we got to get to where we're not angry with each other all the time. We're not slamming doors and hanging up on people and, you know, sending nasty letters or tweets. We got to get there. And it's tough. It isn't easy. I I know because, again, I don't think we change each other's minds on the process here, uh, especially when it comes to masks and children. I'm pretty dug in and it, would take a lot to change my mind, and I have not seen a lot. So that conversation on Toronto Today. By the way, when we first talked to him, um, he went, I mean, I think the slogan would be above and beyond at his pharmacy on Kingston Road to make sure as many people as possible, this is about a year and a half ago now, uh, began to get vaccinated and made this easier. Um, They also put teachers, which we neglected, we really did with the provincial rollout and frontline essential workers to the front of the line. And he joins me now. He is pharmacist Kiro Massey. It's great to have you on again. Thanks very much for the time. Thank you for having me. Well, I'll tell you, I don't want to make anybody matter than they already are, meaning our audience. But I read in the paper this morning about these these uh, pharmaceutical shortages with the kids cold medicine. And I find out that Health Canada and the federal government found out in April um, that there would be a shortage. Wonderful. Um, and seven and a half months later, there's action. When did you start to notice, Kiro, a problem in your pharmacy with keeping it on the shelves? So it was about seven and a half months ago, and I am not here to speak to people and make them comfortably numb, if you will, or make them happy. Uh, if they get mad, let them be That's mad. Cool. I'm reality cool is reality. <laughs> it is what it is, and there's no reason, I guess, to sugarcoat it. Uh, yes, the government is now finally beginning to uh, get some Tylenol and Advil liquid into the country. Hopefully we'll see that sometime in the next month. But this has been going on for about seven months. It has been managed by pharmacies. The elephant in the room that we're not addressing is the antibiotic shortage, the pediatric antibiotic shortage. And we're yet to hear a statement regarding that because that's what's going to send kids to the hospital if we're not able to get that in community pharmacies. Did you start to see, I guess, what we deem panic buying? Did you start to spot that with parents uh, or grandparents even coming into your pharmacy? Well, you can't really do that with antibiotics. But with when it came to Tylenol and, and yeah. Advil, uh, to be quite honest with you, I was keeping it behind the counter for infants because we can't cut up pills or get them to mix with applesauce like we can with, with the larger kids. Like I had a lady come in yesterday and she was after speaking to her and finding out that her son's dose is the same dose as a regular strength Tylenol. I explained to her how to mix it with applesauce and like crush it, et cetera. And then she's like, can he just swallow that? And I was like, your kid could swallow pills. He's like, of course he can. And so Hmm. I, I was like, yeah, he can swallow it. So there's a lot of kids that are using liquid and we could manage it without so we have to hold on to the liquid formula sometimes for the the, the ones that are eight month old or seven month old we can't neglect those 
So we've been doing that for, for quite a few months. Now we have people that are, you know, they're, they're upset at everything. They're, they're kind of defending the, the federal government for messing this up or preventing the, or defending the provincial government for not instating some form of masking in schools. And everyone is just becoming so sectarian and polarized. I encourage people to use their brains and just be logical and understand the capacity that we have in this province and the struggle that is happening in pediatric units right now. So you see a change in mood of your customers. This isn't, I I felt like, boy, pharmacists have been heroes and heroines throughout this process. So when we've gone into a pharmacy to get vaccinated or even to get get a test, um, all all I've seen is patients. And I know not everyone is, but the times I've been there, I'm like, Count to ten. Their their fate. They they are in the the they're they're in the battle right now. You're seeing people with just far less patience and tolerance. Listen, I don't blame anybody for having less patience or tolerance or breaking down and crying because their kid is sick. There's nothing more important than your child. If you have a baby and they they spike a thirty nine point eight or thirty nine point five degree fever and it's been three or four days, you're going to be losing your mind. So this is on the federal government to fix. It's also on the provincial government to fix. Like, it's okay to admit that the federal government screwed this up. And it's okay to admit that the provincial government is the reason why we have a complete, like, debacle in in terms of nursing. They, they, Mm. they, They really did mess up the situation with nurses. Like, let's, let's not take teams or take sides and just call it what it is. And it's also okay to admit the fact that you could be against vaccine mandates, but also admit the fact that masks do prevent and decrease respiratory infections, and they can help us mitigate the situation to some degree. So you don't have to be black or white about this. You don't have to be like almost an extremist in any direction. Just use your brain and follow what the experts say. Because at the end of the day, if you end up in hospital with an infection, you're going to count on the infectious disease doctor to tell you what to do. You're right. You're right. Listen to them. Now, what I'd say is, I don't don't know if you'd have tolerance for my opinion on masks, which is that we can't have them on little kids at this point in time, 31 months into a pandemic. It's happening nowhere else in the world except one country. So in very few countries in the world, do you have this much windows closed and poor ventilations in classrooms? There's very few countries that have this situation. In very few countries in the world, you have such a low hospital capacity. I always say this, if you have the money, spend it. If you have you know, the, the ICU capacity and the nurses and the doctors and all that stuff, by all means, get as thick as you like. But this is not the case here in Canada. We have a very limited capacity and it's been, yes, years in the making. I agree with you. And that is the elephant in the room that we have such low capacity and we don't have medication. But what are you going to do about it? I know. Are you going to sit I, down and, you know, like try to fix the healthcare system in the midst of a pediatric health crisis? I, I know. I know. But I, I would two things to that. And I don't dispute that point. Yeah. 31 months in. I think there's a burden of proof that always falls to recommending the intervention to prove it's safe and effective. 
and the presumption has to be we i think we presume there's harm to every invention a, so, a store gets closed there's harm the, something happens here i can't you know i can't see a dying loved one there's harm so i'd go a step further and make the case that parents will say and i know they're saying to you I can manage my own risk. I know what this is and I know what this isn't. And I, I also don't believe we should mask kids in the long term. It's it's a bit of an open experiment because we do know there are harms and there isn't a burden of proof for the intervention. Well, to one know. second. So you're yeah. telling me that there that you need evidence that masking reduces respiratory infections or you're saying that there are harms wearing masks which like which what is the argument it's it's absolutely both i think an rct of masking kids could have been done in a way that talks about potential risks and benefits to parents and allows informed consent if i don't see a proof of benefit and i know there are harms i can't impose it 31 months in i can't right now you have a peak in respiratory illness in pediatrics you don't have the capacity to deal with it either in community or hospital. Yep. And I'm asking people to have their children, if they're old enough, to wear masks temporarily for a week or two until the system recuperates. Do you think that will have an impact on numbers or do you think it was the time to do that three months ago if that's if you're it of the belief? It wasn't three months ago. So this this surge in respiratory infection started happening about a month ago. But we're over capacity now. So they're, they're over capacity now. So how about we decrease the pressure by reducing the rates of infection? And you could argue about and there's a lot of people that argue with me about this, about the fact that do masks decrease respiratory infection. I could provide you with a meta analysis done on 21 studies. There's a decrease in it was done. Healthcare professionals, a decrease in 80 percent respiratory infections and over 50 percent in the general population and i'm just a pharmacist why did we never consider masking for flu rsv or any transmissible virus before 2020 we never talked about it somebody would have been a genius a millionaire for bringing a study forward that says guess what we should do this and we'd save lives we didn't do it there are plenty of countries that were doing this but in your case here right now is it's the question of capacity. Again, if I had only 20% of the ICU beds, 30% of the pediatric ICU beds occupied right now, I would have never brought this up. Okay? Mm-hmm. But right now you have hospitals that are crumbling. You have, like, you know, people talking about this and saying over 120% capacity, pediatric ICU beds. And you're watching horrific videos I know of parents personally that have had their kids hospitalized and actually intubated with this. If we could decrease this in any way, let's do it. If you have a way of improving ventilation in your kid's classroom, do it. But don't go and tell me that we're going to go and improve our healthcare system in the middle of panic mode. That's not a logical response. And at the same time, don't tell me that we're going to sit down and finger point Trudeau did it, Ford did it, blah, blah, blah. Oh, no, no. I, I don't care about this. Right now, we need to save lives. So put your flags aside. Well, I don't know that it's so political. I, I always look and say the burden of proof falls 
to somebody recommending an intervention and they have to take harms potentially. So you asked about, you know, learning loss. We could talk about that in schools. We could talk about speech. We could talk about uh, students that are obviously autistic or, or have special needs and they shouldn't have masks on. And by and, and European countries, regardless of hospital capacity, just didn't do this with anybody under 12. The World Health Organization and UNICEF, UNICEF likes to, you know, get, get in on some stuff. They said never mask a child under five. And I watched the chief medical officer of health say, mask up your three-year-old in your own home to prevent RSV. It's, it's, a, it's a bridge too far for many parents. If your kid has RSV and you have other children around the house, I would mask my child. I don't want the second child to get RSV. Like it's, look, at the end of the day, common sense presides. I never listened to Health Canada at the beginning of this pandemic when they told me don't mask and masks don't prevent COVID. I actually wore a mask. I was one of the first people that said thanks, but no thanks. And I went and can't remember if it was Health Canada or the provincial government that said this, but because they didn't have masks altogether, and we all know mm-hmm. they sold them in February of 2020 back to China, they, they, they didn't have the masks, so they didn't recommend the masks. But the reality is, no, masks prevent respiratory infection. This, this is an age-old wisdom. This is something that all infectious disease experts, or the reputable ones at least, all agree on. Regardless of what an organization like UNICEF or, or Health Canada has to say, and these are the people that I listen to when I'm in hospital, if I'm being hospitalized, and I was hospitalized for, for a staph infection once, I listened to the infectious disease docs at Sunnybrook. I didn't sit there and give them my opinion and my two cents. Oh, no, no. But I think we'd make the distinction respectfully. We'd make the distinction between a surgeon giving me an appendectomy and standing over me or even a dentist giving me a root canal and and a grade one in their classroom from eight. And by the way, they're going to take them down like you've seen five, six, seven year olds. I can't find a primary school teacher. And I'll tell you something. It's a question of probability. Okay, if you could decrease it, like people talk about the size of the pores on the mass and how much gets through them, et cetera. Okay. I agree with you. It's not a perfect solution, but if it's going to decrease it by 30%, I'll take it. Should okay. We- At a time when your hospital capacity can no longer handle this, at a time when you don't have mm. antibiotics in pharmacies, I would take what I can get just to hinder this so that the system can recuperate. I, I, I get where you're at on this. Let me ask you something that I think is super important for our audience to hear with your expertise. If we'd had every possible pain medication, fever medication available for our young kids, what would it have done or not done to the hospital capacity? People have debated immunity gap. Um, there certainly would be the parents would not be rushing to emergency rooms. And you, you've laid out some cases where it's obvious that they need to be seen by emergency physicians. But when they can't get into their own doctor, when they can't get the right medication, I know that parent feeling um, and, and you feel like you need to do something. What, what would the medication availability have done for us? So the medication availability, it, it would have decreased the amount of pressure on emergency departments. Uh, but it would have done nothing for ICU, I think, because mm-hmm. at the end of the day, if a, if a child has to be admitted to ICU, 
you can give them as much Tylenol as you like. Like there, there, there are certain criteria for that. But if if parents are in a bind when it comes to pain and fever medication, I'm saying this live. Talks or pharmacists, there are options. We could we could heck go on my Twitter page, Kiro Masse, go on mm. it. It's pinned to the top. How to cut up a pill of Advil or Tylenol and and use it so that you're able to provide the dose for child. Talk to your pharmacist. There are ways to compound this, etc. It's not the reason mm. to put pressure on an emergency department or even a physician. It doesn't require a prescription. It could be compounded or made from raw ingredients in a pharmacy without a prescription. So that part, it's going to take off some pressure, I hope. When it comes to antibiotics, the shortage, the elephant in the room that the federal government is yet to address, and I know they're working on it, is the we need these. Yeah. Because if a child gets a secondary infection and the antibiotic is not available in community, yeah. The only other option is IV in a hospital, and that's the last thing that anybody needs in this country right now. It is. It is. Hey, I, I appreciate where you're doing, and I, and I appreciate the debate as well. Somebody may take something from what you said, something from what I said. I, I'm all good with it, and I know, I know you care. So thank you very much for caring and being on our show and giving us the extra time this morning. Privileged to help, sir. Kiro Massey, our guest uh, pharmacist, joining us on uh, Toronto Today.